Good morning. This is Northern Light for Tuesday, December 26th. I'm Monica Sandresky. Todd is off this week. The city of Plattsburgh hasn't had a permanent police chief in three years. The city council just confirmed Peter Mitchell, who wants to bring stability to the department. I think that's what people have needed there, the, the officers need. They've had a lot of, a lot focused on them, um, being pulled, pushed and pulled from a lot of directions, and I think this is what they need. Also on the show, Governor Kathy Hochul plans to try again in the new year to seek the legislature's approval for a comprehensive housing package. I'm not going to head down the same path we did last year with the exact same plan. And in a year that is an election year for the members, where they have different focus and priorities, and I'm going to make sure we get there. Also, we meet a Mohawk beater who lives in the Adirondacks and rediscovered her culture through making jewelry. And we listen back to a story on how a bread recipe can span generations and friendships. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Support for Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio comes from Citizen Advocates, offering the North Country mental health, addiction and housing services, plus crisis care, job training and more. Citizenadvocates.net slash 124. And by Long Run Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor in Lake Placid, providing comprehensive wealth management, retirement and financial planning solutions. Longrunwealth.com. Working group tasked. Oh, this is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. A state working group tasked with analyzing the impacts of a battery storage fire in Jefferson County has found there were no reported injuries or harmful levels of toxins detected. The fire at a st- solar farm in Chameau started on July 27th. A cargo container full of lithium ion batteries used to store electricity there burned for about six days. Governor Kathy Hochul put together a working group to analyze the impacts of the fire and two others in Orange and Suffolk counties. The group took a look at air quality, soil, and water data collected in the days following the incidents. The group also plans to put out draft recommendations to update fire and building codes pertaining to battery energy storage systems in the next few months. The Plattsburgh City Council confirmed the appointment of a new police chief last week. Peter Mitchell could be the city's first active permanent police chief in three years, but his appointment didn't come without some controversy. Kara Chapman reports. Hours before last week's meeting, Councilor Elizabeth Gibbs sent out an email explaining why she'd be voting against making Peter Mitchell the city's next police chief. Mitchell, who was most recently a captain, has been with the department for about 25 years. Among other things, Gibbs claimed that he'd lied and made misleading statements in a memo to counselors about what he'd done for the department. She also said that different rules were being applied to his candidacy for chief. Gibbs wrote, quote, he's a bad choice and he's bad for the department, which means he's bad for the city. Mitchell spoke to reporters after the vote Thursday. It's her opinion and I'm not going to comment on him right now. 
Gibbs also made some comments about Mayor Chris Rosenquist. She said he called civil service to make Mitchell a permanent captain before his test results came out, which she characterized as political corruption. She also said Thursday's meeting was the only time Rosenquist could get the needed votes for Mitchell's appointment. The mayor did not comment directly on Gibbs' claims. He did say that his office has to follow civil service rules and cannot undermine them. Um, I do not agree with those rules all of the time, and I've said as much, uh, but at the end of the day, it is the law, and I cannot... um uh, I have no mechanism or or desire to undermine that law. Uh, I have a desire to change parts of it because it is it is challenging to navigate civil service law. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we still have to follow those rules. Gibbs was the only no vote on Mitchell's appointment. Councilors Julie Bond and Jeff Moore both abstained, while the other three councilors voted yes. Mitchell's appointment as chief is provisional. That means it's pending the results of a civil service test he'll take in March. Rosenquist said he made the appointment now because some counselors had approached him about putting it on the agenda for consideration. The Plattsburgh Police Department hasn't had an active permanent police chief for three years. Former Chief Levi Ritter was placed on administrative leave in December 2020, two months after he was named in an excessive use of force lawsuit. He resigned in April 2021. Rosenquist tried to replace him with an external hire two years ago, but the council voted down his pick, Vermont State Police Captain Mike Manley. The city made former Warren County Sheriff Nathan Bud York interim police chief in early 2022. York held that position for more than a year. Mitchell says he hopes his appointment brings stability to the department. I think that's what people have needed there, the, the officers need. Um, you know, they've, they've worked through some stuff. They've had a lot, of, a lot focused on them, um, being pulled, pushed and pulled from a lot of directions. And I think this is what they need. Mitchell says his priorities include recruiting more officers, working on the department's reputation, and getting the city's drug problem under control. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio, Plattsburgh City Hall. Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill that will shift some local elections normally held in odd number of years to even number of years. It takes effect in 2025. Supporters say the move will increase voter turnout, including among minorities. They say it will also save money because it would consolidate many local elections with higher profile races for governor, Congress and president. Opponents, including many Republicans and the New York State Association of Counties, contend local races will get lost in the mix. Reporter John Campbell covers the Capitol for WNYC. Republicans hate this idea in part because they, New York is a democratic state and New York's democratic voters turn out in presidential election years. So they view this as kind of a power play by the, the Democrats and, and trying to quote unquote rig local elections. When the new law doesn't uh, affect elections not under the state's legislature's oversight, which includes judicial races and elections for New York City offices. When the 2024 state legislative session begins in early January, one of the top priorities will be tackling the state's affordable housing crisis. As Karen DeWitt reports, Governor Kathy Hochul will try for a second year to convince lawmakers to adopt a comprehensive housing plan. Hochul began 2023 with an ambitious plan to create 800,000 new housing units to help ease the state's affordable housing crisis. Here's what she said on January 10th. No more waiting for someone else to fix this problem. 
Housing is a human right. The plan included controversial mandatory housing quotas for localities. If cities, towns, or villages did not meet those requirements, then the state could step in and override local zoning laws. Those ideas were a tough sell to suburban Democrats in the legislature who feared backlash from constituents. Hochul included the plan in her state budget. It was due April 1st, but housing talk stagnated, and when the budget was over three weeks later, Late, the governor dropped the building requirement from the spending plan. Recently, she said she would not revive that construction mandate in 2024. She says she knows the proposal could be volatile in a key election year. I'm not going to head down the same path that we did last year with the exact same plan and in a year that is an election year for the members where they have different focus and priorities and I'm going to make sure we get there. The governor's plan also ran into roadblocks from progressives in the legislature. They said they didn't want to approve a housing package unless it included tenants' rights protections, known as the Good Cause Evictions Act. Assembly Housing Committee Chair Linda Rosenthal is one of the lawmakers who wanted to include the tenants' rights measure. Rosenthal held a hearing on housing issues earlier in December, where she says the crisis has only worsened in the past year. It's abundantly clear to all of us that New York State is facing a persistent and critical shortage of affordable housing. However, our response to this crisis will require a diverse set of approaches which may be different in each region of the state. The governor's housing commissioner was invited to testify at the hearing but did not attend. And finally, Hochul was not successful in reviving a government-funded tax incentive for developers who include affordable housing in their projects, known as 421A. That expired a couple of years ago. The governor, since the session ended last June, has struck out on her own, using executive powers to create new housing on state-owned property, including rehabbing a former prison and a state psychiatric center. She says she's ready to try again to win legislative approval of her housing plan in the new year. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Water levels on Lake Ontario have declined to slightly below the long-term average as winter sets in. According to the Lake Ontario St. Lawrence River Board, water levels had been above average last spring, summer, and fall, but started to drop in November. Outflows from the Moses Saunders Power Dam have returned to normal to ensure safe navigation for St. Lawrence Seaway ships. The seaway is scheduled to close for the winter on January 5th. Average or below average water levels at this time of year mean there will be space for the spring thaw and therefore a lower chance of flooding. What happens in the spring, however, will ultimately depend on the weather before then. Current and prospective student college students in New York can now apply for spring 2024 Excelsior scholarships. The state scholarships make SUNY and CUNY schools tuition free for eligible students. To be eligible, students must come from households with adjusted gross incomes of $125,000 or less. They must also complete 30 academic credits per year and stay on track to get their associate degree in two years or their bachelor's degree in four. Governor Kathy Hochul announced the opening of applications last week. The deadline to apply is February 2nd. Keep up with news from the NCPR newsroom throughout the day at our website, ncpr.org, or follow the station on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's about 10 after 8.
You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. Good morning. I'm Monica Sandresky. Todd is off this week. Coming up on the program, bread recipes that span generations, friendships, and camping trips. That's coming up in just a few minutes right here on Northern Light, which is supported by Fisher, Bassett, Muldowney, and McArdle attorneys and counselors at law with offices in Malone, Tupper Lake, and Saranac Lake, 800-941-5001. And the Adirondack Foundation, connecting generous donors with the causes they care about in the places they love today, tomorrow, and always more at Adirondack Foundation. Foundation.org. Music now by Evan Veenstra out of Gananoque. People have been making beaded jewelry for thousands of years. It's a practice deeply ingrained in a lot of Native cultures. As we listen back to some of our favorite stories from this year, we're revisiting a profile of a young Mohawk beater who's based in the Adirondacks. I'm from Akwesasne originally. Deglios also goes by her English name, Jocelyn Jock. Jock beads intricate earrings and other artwork, but it wasn't until she left home that she found a passion for this part of her culture. Emily Russell brings us her story, which first aired in January of this year. Jocelyn Jock was driving through the Adirondacks recently when she spotted a dead porcupine on the side of the road. So she pulled over and started plucking out its quills. At first, I was just like pulling like handfuls out of it and like just thanking the creator and everything. Jock makes jewelry with those quills. They're hollow, so they act like a kind of bead. I like went to get in my car to drive away and I was like, I can't just leave it there. So I like just threw it in the back and then I drove home. At her home in Bloomingdale, Jock keeps those quills in a little clear box. They're about two inches long, a kind of pale white color, and are super sharp. Jock says it took her five whole days to harvest these. Each porcupine has about 30,000 quills on it, and you have to pluck them individually by hand. You have to wash them individually, you have to boil them, you have to dry them, and then you have to trim them. Jock first learned to bead when she was just six years old, but it didn't turn into a big part of her childhood. She lived in Akwesasne, but went to school off the reservation in Messina. During the day, she'd be surrounded by white people and white culture. Jock says bouncing between worlds was really hard. I wasn't white enough to fit in with the white kids, and I wasn't native enough to fit in with the native kids. So it was kind of just like a really back and forth of having to like walk a very particular line. Eventually, she left Akwesasne, moved to the Adirondacks for college. But then she started going back home to see family. That is when she really began beating on a regular basis. I would visit with my mom, and that's, that's what we would do. She would teach me, and we'd kind of just talk, and we would beat, and that would be like our hanging out when I would go home. And then COVID happened, so I stopped going home so often, and I started doing it here. 
She watched videos on YouTube, found patterns on Pinterest. Jock has been beading now for years. I am just going to bring the beads down to the end of the string. She's beading now onto a piece of felt. Jock tightens the two tiny beads up. And then I will pierce the fabric with the needle. Pull it all the way through. And then I will go back through uh, the two beads. And that is one stitch. One stitch takes her about 30 seconds. So beaded earrings can take anywhere from 4 to 40 hours to make. She beads either on her lunch break or when she's not working at Nori's, a natural food store in Saranac Lake. Right now, she sells her earrings on commission. Almost all of my coworkers on the cafe side have them. Um, almost, everyone. almost everyone at Nori's has a pair of my earrings. That voice you hear in the background is Jock's older sister, Presley Ransom. My name is Presley. I am 30 years old from Akwazasne. Ransom and Jock live together, along with their other sister, Keely, and Ransom's husband. Like Jock, Ransom bounced between native and white cultures as a kid, never feeling like she fit in anywhere. Ransom says that really left a mark on her. I really suppressed my culture. I never learned how to bead. I never learned how to dance. And I never learned how to cook uh, our traditional foods. So to watch her really embrace our culture has been phenomenal to be able to back her nonstop and to be pushing her art. It's amazing to see. Ransom has been a kind of guinea pig for Jock's earrings. She also helped Jock connect with a ski company out west, Vishnu Free Ski. The company commissioned a beaded piece by Jock that took her 600 hours to make. A photo of that piece is now the design on a pair of pretty fancy downhill skis. Jock says the piece tells a story of family, of Mohawk culture, and of a time when Native children were forcibly taken from their homes and stripped of that culture. The orange colors are for the residential schools and for all those who didn't make a home. The strawberries that are there are, there's three of them. It's kind of just representing me and my sisters. And strawberries are really good medicine. Then there are rows of pink and red for the missing and murdered indigenous women. Jack says it's important for her not only to embrace her culture, but to share it with others, both the beauty and the pain. She also hopes that sharing and selling her work on Instagram inspires others to do the same. I hope that other native, younger Native artists see it and they go, oh, I can do that too. And they just try their hand at anything and they just post about it and they just try to find their voice. Jock found her voice through her beaded jewelry and through embracing her Mohawk culture. She hopes one day she can bead full-time, make a real living doing what she really loves. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio, Bloomingdale. That story first aired in January of this year. Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Monica Sandreski. Right now it's about 20 after 8. Coming up in just a minute, 
bread time stories. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note, how Bob White's got from mainland North America to Cuba. It's coming up at 842, but first we got to take a look at the weather. At last check, it was 31 degrees in Saranac, 33 in Newcomb, and 33 degrees in Watertown. A little misty and foggy out there right now, but should be clearing out uh, in the next hour or so. Then uh, partly cloudy skies in the forecast today with highs pretty mild in the mid-40s, up to about 50 in Watertown. Overnight tonight, lows in the 40s expected with a chance of rain. Rain continuing into the day tomorrow, too, with highs in uh, in the mid-40s expected. Should be cooling off into the 30s and maybe down into the 20s and the high peaks by the weekend. A few winters ago, we shared stories from listeners of baking and breaking bread with family, friends, and community, and how bread plays a part in daily life and holiday celebrations. Today, we'll listen back to two bread time stories set outdoors. Louise McCarran of Charlotte, Vermont, shares a favorite bread dough recipe that she used on canoe trips into the Yukon, the Argentine wilderness, and her own kitchen. But first, Tom Vandewater of Colton shares sourdough bread stories from biking and hiking trips and how his love of bread spans generations and many friendships. So bread baking has been in my family for a long time. I've been smelling my grandmother's bread, uh, both my grandmother's and my mom's. Um, and I remember my grandmother telling me how to knead for at least 10 minutes before putting the bread to rise, but I don't really follow that anymore unless I'm feeling like kneading and kneading for uh, more meditative purposes. But when I was 19, my friend Dave uh, at Moose Creek Ranger Station in Idaho taught me that bread made from freshly ground wheat was amazingly good. And he also taught me some simple kneading methods that I still use. So I thank him uh, for that. And I have been baking bread pretty much ever since. Um, During the ice storm of 1998, I started a sourdough uh, that was from Laurel's Kitchen Bread Book. And I kept it going for year after year. I'd uh, try making all different kinds of sourdough breads, uh, even some sourdough bagels that uh, I one time remember bringing in during the ice storm uh, into uh, uh, NCPR. So it's been fun to do breads as gifts. But I've also carried this small container of sourdough with me on long biking and hiking trips. And I'd often share starter with people who were interested in making bread and making bread for people that I really had just met. So several summers ago, I forgot my sourdough starter at home. And while I was working on a fire lookout in Idaho, I visited a friend who was dying of cancer and who'd always made amazingly great bread and pancakes from sourdough. And Warren gave me uh, some of his starter, which was uh, great to have. And he'd gotten it from his friend, Bud Moore, who was a Rocky Mountain uh, trapper and ranger, kind of a true sourdough. And it's the starter that I still have and I've been using for bread every week since. Um, So I've continued to give uh, lessons in sourdough to anybody who's interested. And um, this summer, another friend uh, gave us a 
recipe of a sourdough seed bread that I've been making this fall. So every time I bake bread, I think about all those who've come before and who are ahead. So it's kind of the perfect medium for being present uh, and making something good, but knowing it's connected to the past and the future. McCarran. I live in Shalott, Vermont, and I'm a longtime fan and supporter of North Country Public Radio. The bread, or actually the technique uh, that I'm going to talk about, is something that uh, we worked on and developed for our many, many wilderness canoe trips up in Yukon, Alaska, Nunavut. And when you're out on a trip for three weeks, people get hungry, so you need to feed them. What it is, it's pretty straightforward. It's a um, it's a mixture of flour, instant yeast, hot tap water, which out in the bush we would just use some water left over from tea, and a very small amount of sugar. And you, you beat that mixture together to it's a, it's a pretty thick, thick paste. And then even at home, but out there, you'd put it in a large plastic tub with a cover. And you let it ferment at least 12 hours, but it's good up to three days. And we would uh, stick the couple of bowls under the front seat of the canoe. And then when we got into camp, we'd obviously have to gather wood and build a fire and build a fireplace. And then we would, at the end of the, into the coals, you would put uh, the bread, which you had now kneaded in this large bowl, uh, into a hot, hot pot and cover that up and leave it to whoever was staying up in camp to watch. So sometimes we had great bread and sometimes not so great bread. The other great use of the dough is in the mornings to make English muffins. And you we would just take clumps of dough, handfuls of dough, knead them a little bit, and cut, and let them rise. Uh, and if necessary, you put them near the fire and let them rise up. And then you fry them in a cast iron frying pan with some oil or butter and a little cover. And you'd have fabulous English muffins for everybody to eat for breakfast. To do that, we would bring a cast iron uh, frying pan. And, you know, people would kind of complain and get cranky on, on portages about the pot and the cast iron pan. But, hey... They loved it, all of all of the muffins and the bread, and it really went a long way to making the trips a lot more fun. And you can do this at home. I do it all the time. The dough also makes fabulous pizza crust. You just roll it out, and it makes great rolls as well. So it's it's one of our family stories about being out in the woods and still being able to eat well. And that's my bread story. Out there, there's no predetermined camping places. You know, you just, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, because you're paddling six to seven hours a day, you look, you know, you look for a place to camp. And everybody has a job. you got to unload all the boats. you got to, you know, find places to put the tents. Somebody's got to go get wood. And, you know, somebody's got to build a fireplace. And so you're, you're pretty hungry. <laughs> and it tastes better outdoors, too, right? <laughs> well, that was always my theory as the cook. People were grateful for my food. Lou 
Louise McCarran of Charlotte, Vermont, shared a favorite bread dough recipe, perfect for the camping trip and in the home kitchen. We also heard from Tom Vandewater of Colton, sharing sourdough bread stories from biking and hiking trips. Our Bread Time uh, Stories series first aired in 2019. That's it for the show for the day. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. Then join us later this morning for a special, a season's griot, a Kwanzaa celebration in story and song. Hosted by acclaimed storyteller Madafo Lloyd-Wilson, a season's griot is an annual one-hour special that captures the tales and traditions of African-American and African peoples. The show's poet laureate Beverly Fields Burnett and other members of the season's griot family return with uh, with familiar and faithful favorite elements of griot that's coming up later this morning between 11 and noon right here on NCPR. If you miss an episode of Northern Light, never fear. You can always listen back to the archive any place you get your podcasts. While you're there, subscribe to our daily news roundup story of the day, where you'll hear the biggest stories in our region and get the latest on the day's news. You can also listen live to that program every weekday afternoon at 548. This is Northern North Country Public Radio. I'm Monica Sandresky.